Well, today we have a guest speaker, and I'm proud to introduce to you John Soper, who's been my friend for a long time. Uh, he's one of my favorite people, and he, I met him here when I was 28, and he was 31. We met in Medford. He, long uh, time. Yeah, long, long time ago for uh, both of us. And um, so John had started a church uh, out in Pomona, and he came here as a representative of, the, of this district of the Christian Missionary Alliance called the Metropolitan District, put me in his station wagon and drove me around the Medford area and said, here's where we'd like to start a church. And he had a vision for this church long before I did. He already had a Bible study going here with three or four people in it and trying to get things started. And God's used John to start a whole bunch of churches in different places. Okay, I've stayed here for 37, 38 years almost now, and, but John's been all over the place. Starting churches in different places in New Jersey, uh, going to Australia and planning churches, coming here and being a district extension director, which means he helps plant churches throughout New Jersey and New York and Long Island, and then even uh, the district superintendent of our district, and then even working in Colorado, the headquarters of the Christian Missionary Alliance, as a vice president, helping people start churches around the United States. So God's used him in many, many ways in many different places. As he likes to say, he can't keep a job for very long, keeps moving on. <laughs> And now he's up in New York. In fact, he's also planted church in, or helps uh, church up in northern New York. And now he's in White Plains. And God's using him there. And um, John, is, I, both of us have seen a lot of guys come and go. And it's, it's certainly great to have John here because this church probably wouldn't be here without God first talking to John, even before he talked to me about it. And uh, God's used him in a great way. And he's been a great friend and a great friend to our church. And he's spoken here a few times. And, Good to have you back. God bless you, man. Be here, Marty. God bless. I told Marty last night that uh, I can go to heaven now because I have now preached at every auditorium and, and sanctuary that this church has met in. <laughs> Starting with a Quaker meeting house down in town. That's where we had our very first meeting before Marty was even on the scene. And uh, I've preached in all the, all the different iterations here on campus and at the school before that. And so now, now, now I've done it all, so it's okay. Uh, and it's just been a delight to watch Marty and Laurie and, and to watch the progress of this church down through the years and see how God has blessed it. And uh, just praise God for all that he's done. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 1. And uh, I, I want to read this psalm, and you'll understand why as we get into the message. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight's in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked aren't like that. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked won't stand in the judgment. They're sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, help us this morning as we come before your word. We want to be people who are like those trees planted by rivers of water. We want to be righteous people. We want to be prosperous people. We want to be blessed people. So open our hearts to hear what you say to us and give us the willingness to respond in faith so that we can be the righteous people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A huge auditorium was filled to overflowing with people lots bigger than this room. 
uh, filled with adoring and uh, ardent fans. The music was loud. The crowd was swaying and swooning over the music of America's first rock icon because Elvis was in the house. Elvis Presley. All of a sudden, in the middle of a song, he stopped the music. And uh, he was obviously agitated. Somebody had just unfurled a banner over one of the balconies, and the banner said, Elvis is the king. And he stopped the music, and he said to this huge crowd, thank you very much for the compliment, but Elvis is not the king. Jesus Christ is the king. And he wouldn't start the music again until the banner came down. Kind of a surprising thing to happen in the middle of a rock concert, right? But, but if you know very much about this astonishing icon of rock and roll, you'll know that in spite of the obvious weaknesses and inconsistencies in his life, he consistently identified himself as a devoted, though admittedly weak, follower of Jesus. Elvis had his beginnings in, in gospel music. He used to sneak into the back of, of the Blackwood Brothers concerts, a gospel group back in, in Nashville back in the 50s and 60s. The only Grammys Elvis ever won were for his gospel songs. And, and a lot of the performers in Las Vegas didn't like to work with Elvis because they knew that after every concert, he would try to pressure them to... Uh, to, to go back to his room and jam on gospel music all along, and they didn't want to do it. An incredibly talented rock star who wanted to be a follower of Jesus, but whose life ended tragically without him ever having any real impact for Christ. But it does make me wonder, do you think there's going to be an Elvis sighting in heaven? Now, I need you to help me here. I need you to think of the name of a righteous man in the book of Genesis in the Bible, okay? Got a, got a name in your, in your brain? How many people are thinking about Abraham? Yeah, that would be a good choice. Abraham was certainly a righteous man. God used him to start the, the, the Jewish nation, and out of him he said, through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. A righteous man, that'd be a great choice, but that's not the one I'm thinking about. Um, how many people went for uh, Noah? That'd yeah, be another good choice. Noah was the only righteous man on the earth at that time, and God used him to restart the human race after the destruction of the flood. Maybe you came up with uh, Enoch or, or Joseph. How many people got Joseph? All righteous men, but not the ones I'm thinking of. Here, here's the passage I'm thinking about. There's a passage in Second uh, Peter that says this about a man named Lot. It says that God rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. He lived in Sodom. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials. Lot. That name might surprise you. And it would surprise you if you know much about him. Because as far as I can tell, apart from that verse in Second Peter, there is not one single shred of evidence that Lot ever made one good decision in his entire life. Now, obviously he did. 
But uh, the Bible didn't tell us about any of those. Here's the sum total of everything we know about Lot. The, the, the first thing we know about him comes in, in Genesis chapter 11, when God called Abram to leave the land of Ur and to go to a land he didn't know where he was going. It turns out to be the promised land. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and I'm, through you I'm going to bless all the people of the earth. And Abram takes his, leaves Ur, and he brings his father with him, and he brings his nephew. His nephew's name is Lot. Now in chapter 12 of Genesis, they get to a place called Haran, and Abram's father, Terah, dies there. And then Abram continues his journey to the promised land, and he takes Lot with him again. But we only know that Lot's with Abram. We don't know anything about him. Genesis 13 is the first time he actually shows up. And in Genesis 13, God has blessed Abram exceedingly in the promised land. And uh, now Abram's become very, very rich and very wealthy because God's blessed him. And the primary way in which you had wealth and kept wealth in those days was, was through flocks and herds. So Abram's flocks and herds have been multiplied greatly. He's got lots of sheep, lots of goats, lots of cattle. And uh, God's also blessed Lot because he's with Abram. And to the point at which now their herdsmen are having conflicts because they're, they're fighting over pasture land. So Abram takes Lot to the top of a high hill, a mountain, and he says, look around, and here's what we're going to do. You get to choose wherever you want to go, and you can have any property you want. You take your lot, your, your herds and flocks there, and I'll go in a different direction, and then we'll avoid this conflict. So they get to the top of the hill. Lot looks around, and he sees this one really beautiful piece of, of land, rich pasturage, well-watered plain, Lots of water, lots of green glass, great, great place for, for, for sheep. And he says, I'll take that. And there's only one issue. That plain is right next to the city called Sodom. You've heard of Sodom, right? Not a good place. Not a righteous place. Not a place you'd want to raise your kids or have anyone who has any concern for righteousness. But that's where this plain is. So it says, Lot pitched his tents towards Sodom. Now, it was only an economic decision. He wanted to go where he could make money, where his flocks could get healthy, breed, and, and he could get richer. He, he never intended, I'm sure, to go into Sodom, but this place was near there. Good decision or bad? Mm, first, maybe we're not sure, but it turns out it's a bad decision. Next time we hear about Lot's in Genesis chapter 14. Okay, now, Sodom, Gomorrah... And the other three cities of the plain have stopped paying taxes to their overlord, a guy named Ketelomar. And so this king who has governance over these cities comes down with his army. He attacks these cities. He loots them. He takes away all the wealth. And he takes the, the leading citizens of these five towns as hostages. And he starts to go back to his country. Abram finds out about it. And Abram decides because Lot is now living in Sodom, he's no longer living near Sodom, he's now living in Sodom, and so he's one of these hostages. Abram says, I've got to do something about this. He organizes his own men. He's got his own private army of 318 men. You've got to be pretty rich to have an army of 318 bodyguards, right? And so he organizes his own private army. He chases this conquering king, surprises him, ambushes him, wins the battle, 
gets back all the loot and all of the riches that have been plundered from the cities of the plain, and he rescues Lot. Gives Lot a choice. Now, you can go back and live in Sodom if you want, but maybe that's not a great place for you to be. Why don't you come back with me or go? So- and Lot chooses to go back to Sodom. Good decision or bad? Not a good decision. The only other time we hear about Lot's in Genesis chapter 19. Now, in Genesis 18, two angels from God show up where Abraham is living in Mamre, and they say to Abram, God has decided to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they're so wicked and so evil. But we know Lot's living there, and as a favor to you, Abram, God's sending us down to Sodom, and we're going to rescue Lot and his family, get him out of there before the judgment comes. And uh, so Abram's grateful for that. The angels leave. They get down to Sodom, and in Genesis 19, it says, when they arrived at Sodom, they found Lot sitting in the gates of the city. Now, that's kind of uh, culture speak for he's now a bigwig in Sodom. The people who sit in the gates of the city are the mayor, the town manager, and the city council, the people who are running the place. And Lot's one of them now. And so these angels get there. Lot doesn't know they're angels at first. And they give him the message, God's going to destroy this city. We want you to leave with us tomorrow. And Lot doesn't want to come. His family doesn't want to leave. And uh, what's worse, a mob gathers around his house. These two strangers are there. They don't know they're angels. And uh, the scripture just says euphemistically, the mob wanted to have their way with these men. And uh, Lot almost makes a good decision because he wants to protect these visitors. He still doesn't really understand their angels. He wants to protect them. And so his idea of a good decision is I'm going to protect these guests in my house, take my daughters instead. Good decision or bad? Well, I don't need to ask. Terrible. And that's all we know about Lot. The angels solved the problem, by the way. They blind the mob. And then the next morning, they drag Lot and his family, kicking and screaming out of Sodom. They rescue them in spite of themselves. And that's it. That's all we know about Lot. So on the basis of that, if we don't know about that passage in Second Peter, would you put Lot on your list of righteous people? I don't think so. I certainly would. Not in a million years. How many of you would vote him off the island? I would. Never in a million years would I expect to get to heaven and find Lot there in the company of the righteous. But God says Lot was righteous. And then just so we don't miss it, he says it again, that Lot was a righteous man. So maybe there will be an Elvis sighting in heaven. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, the first conclusion I think we need to make is that we need to be pretty careful about our judgments about who's in and who's out. A lot of times I see people, and and I don't see a lot, but what I see suggests to me that they don't really know Jesus. They're not really Christians. They might be in church, but their lives... And and so I kind of make make, make decisions. And I kind of write them off. Not a good thing to do. I don't know their hearts. You don't know their hearts. 
you know, flip that thing over, and I think when we get to heaven, we're probably going to expect to see some people that won't be there because we don't know their hearts. But the second conclusion, and the one I'm really going for here, is this. Righteous people, real followers of Jesus, sometimes make really, really bad choices. You never made a bad choice, right? And sometimes when you make a really bad choice, that leads to another bad choice. Never happened to you, right? And then those bad choices lead to other bad choices. And before you know it, you've gone a whole lot further than you ever expected to go in a direction you never expected to be. You find yourself in a place you never thought you'd be, never wanted to be. And you don't want to be there now, but that's where you are. It happens. It happens to people who love God. It happens to people who want to be followers of Jesus. Sin always takes us further than we want to go, a lot faster than we ever thought it could happen. Trust me. Read the story of Cain and Abel. It only took one generation to get from Garden of Eden to a brother murdering another brother. That's what sin does. And here's the point. It is very possible for Christians, real followers of Jesus, to become righteous disasters. They love God, but their lives are a mess. Read the Bible. Read about the kings of Judah. A lot of them started out pretty well. They loved God, they served God, they wanted to do the right things by God's people. But not very many of them end well. Not even David and Solomon ended well. Read the biographies of people in the Bible and in history. Look at the lives of contemporary people. Just last week, I was shocked and, and, and saddened to hear the fall of another pastor of a big church who uh, made some really bad choices, and now he's lost his ministry. Folks, I don't want to become a righteous disaster. I'm five weeks away from retirement, by the way. Second retirement. Probably there'll be a third one. I don't know, who knows. But, but, uh, but even after I've left my church, I, I don't want to be a righteous disaster. And I don't want you to become righteous disasters. But hear me, that is a very great possibility for every single one of us. None of us are immune. Now, we, we could get all hung up here trying to figure out whether Lot and Elvis were ever really saved or whether they lost their salvation. That, that's the wrong question. Here's the right question. How do I keep, how do you keep from becoming just another righteous disaster? And that's why we've come to Psalm 1. Because it provides for us one of the important keys, one of the spiritual disciplines, the practices and habits that will keep us from becoming disasters and that will help us to become blessed. By the way, whenever you read the word blessed or blessed in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you can always make a mental translation and use the word happy in its place because that's what it means. The word blessed means happy. In fact, the same word in Hebrew and Greek that's translated blessed 
is also the word that's translated sometimes as happy. And God wants us to be happy, blessed, and prosperous people. Look at the description the psalmist gives of the blessed or happy person. It's right in verse 3. This person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. Jeremiah uses exactly the same analogy in chapter 17 of his book. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He'll be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. Pretty good description. And uh, when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses exactly the same analogy when he talks to the Colossian believers. He says, that as we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, we should continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. That's what I want my life to be like. That's what I want your life to be like. I I, I want to be like that fruitful, healthy tree that's always green, always bears fruit when it's supposed to. Now, I know just a couple of weeks ago, Marty spoke to you about prayer, right? Do you remember that sermon? How many people remember that sermon? Marty, there's hope. They actually remember. Uh, sometimes we preachers wonder, you know, how much you keep in your brain. Well, that's great news. Well, Marty talked about prayer. And uh, that's another one of those practices, those disciplines. One of the things we need to do to make sure our roots are deep and that we stay connected to God and to the sources of our spiritual strength. So, in light of the fact that a lot of Christians never get those roots down deep, and consequently they end up like Elvis or like Lot as righteous disasters, how do we avoid that fate? How do we ensure that we become those trees planted by the streams of water? And the answer is back in verse 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful. See, I think there's a parallel between the life of Lot that we looked at in Genesis and this verse of Scripture, especially if you pay attention to the verbs. Genesis 13, we're told that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. I'm sure he never meant to go live in Sodom. He just wanted to be down there where the green grass was and where his flocks could prosper. But the psalmist says, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't make that movement toward them. And in Genesis 14, we're told that Lot is living in Sodom. He's now not moving toward them. He's stationary. He's in Sodom. And Psalm 1 says, don't stand in the way of sinners. That's a little more sedentary than walking. And then in Genesis 19, what's Lot doing? He's sitting in the gates of Sodom. He's put his roots down there. He's planted there. And Psalm 1 says, don't sit in the seat of the mockers. You see, Psalm 1-1 turns out to be a divine commentary on the life of Lot. It's an explanation for what happened and for what still happens to people. And this is incredibly important for us this morning because Jesus has called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's our mandate. Now, salt can't do its job if it never touches the meat. And light can't do its job if you hide it under a bushel, Jesus said, or you put it under the bed. 
That, that means we can't become separatists as Christians. We can't form a holy huddle to keep the world out because we're afraid it might corrupt us. Some Christians try to do that, and they go off and form a commune someplace or get away from the world completely. But, but if we do that, we can't exercise our mandate. We can't be the light of the world. We can't be the salt of the earth. Jesus actually tells us to go into the world. And then he prays that God would keep us in the world, but not of the world. So we need to be very aware that there's a real danger in what we're trying to do. See, our job, the job God's given this church, is to make sure that every man, woman, and child in this region of South Jersey gets a chance to hear the gospel. You believe that? That's your job? It's a job you share with other churches and with other believers. But if it's not your job, whose job is it? Right? That's our mandate. That's our job. But unless we're careful, we won't influence them. They'll influence us. In fact, the major problem with the church in the United States of America in the year 2018 is that the world influences the church more than the church influences the world. Shouldn't be that way. Greater is he who's in you than, he's in the, than, than he that's in the world. But it is that way. So what do we, what do, we do? What can we do? The solution's in Psalm 1-2. This is the prescription that will keep us from becoming righteous disasters. Here is the guaranteed path to true happiness and spiritual success. You ready? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. The book of Psalms is a book of wisdom. It begins with a strategically placed psalm of blessing, Psalm 1. And with this fundamental truth, the psalmist makes it really clear. There's only two roads. One road leads to blessing. The other road leads to disappointment and disaster. One road is righteous. The other road is evil. Uh, one road produces fruitfulness and success. The other one's disappointment and destruction. If you walk in the way of blessing, God says, you'll be like that tree planted by the rivers of order. You'll bear fruit in season. Your leaves won't wither. If you choose the other road, he says you're like chaff, husks that the wind blows away, and you won't be able to stand in the moment of trial or judgment. Everything rides on verse 2. This is how to be sure we won't become yet another righteous disaster. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. Now, if you've been around the Alliance for a little while, you know, we have some core values in the Christian Mission Alliance, and one of them is this. Knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success. That's what Joshua learned when, when the day he took over from Moses, God said this to him. Be careful to obey all the law Moses, my servant, gave you. Don't depart from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. God said the same thing to Moses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today should be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you stand up. When you're lying down, standing up, walking, sitting, that's pretty much everything we do, right? Think about the Word of God, the law of God. Meditate on it. Psalm 119, the longest verse, chapter in the whole Bible, has one theme. It's the way the Word of God affects our lives. And that psalm says, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That psalm says, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. How many of you have ever heard of William Wilberforce? Know who he was? He was a parliamentarian in England at the end of the 19th century, and uh, he was pretty much single-handedly behind the movement to abolish slavery and the slave trade throughout the British Empire. It took 40 years from the time he first introduced a bill into the House of Lords till the time that slavery and the slave trade were finally abolished. And from beginning to end, one man was behind that. If you've never read or heard his story, get, get the movie Amazing Grace and watch it. It's an amazing story about his persistence. But, but you know what motivated him the whole time? His commitment to the Word of God. I, I found a little passage in his diary that I read a few years ago. And he's talking about uh, one particularly long day in Parliament House and one that hadn't gone that well. And he said, uh, I left Parliament House about nine in the evening, and I walked home by way of St. James Place and Hyde Park. And he said, uh, I walked home reciting the 119th Psalm. That told me everything I needed to know. God's Word changed his life. God's Word changed his value system. God's Word changed everything, empowered the way he lived and what he lived for. And that man changed the world. Because God's word changed his life. Jesus says, If you know my commands, happy, blessed, you'll be if you do them. He also said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you can ask for whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Listen to me. This book is the living Word of God. It's God-breathed. It's alive. It's quick. It's sharp. It's powerful. And every single person who engages the Word of God with an open heart and an open mind is fundamentally transformed by that Word. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to change us. As a pastor, i got to understand that. I've got to understand that I can't change anybody's heart or anybody's mind. No pastor can. Not even Pastor Marty can change people's hearts or people's minds. We can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, and the instrument that he uses to do it is the Word of God. Do you know what that means? It means that the most important thing that you and I can do is to help people get into the Bible. Christian, do you want to be like Jesus? I hope the answer to that question is yes. Then do what Jesus did. Every single time he was tempted by the enemy to sin, do you remember how he responded? It is 
written. And he quote the scripture back to the devil. Psalm 119. Your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So here's the deal. The conclusion of the matter can be stated in the form of a very simple proposition. Your spiritual success or failure will be directly proportional to the role that the Word of God plays in your daily life. If you know it, if you obey it, you will succeed. If not, then you might well become the next righteous disaster. I've had a lot of jobs in the last 47 years. Marty told you I can't hold one. Uh, but, but I have no doubt that my biggest legacy as a pastor will be something called mission119.org. It's also known as Know the Word. Name comes from Psalm 19, that chapter about God's Word. It's a downloadable app that you can put right on your phone. It's a free app. And every day it will take you through uh, about three pages of the Bible, 10 minutes to read it or listen to it because it'll do that for you, and then another 10 minutes of me taking you as a tour through that passage that you read. It takes 91 weeks, five days a week to do this. I built that app thinking that I was trying to do something for my congregation. See, my church in White Plains, New York, uh, is, is a church full of commuters. Got people from 65 different countries of the world. It's an amazing church. More than 100 Chinese people, a couple of hundred Spanish people from Central and South America, uh, 30 Hungarians. I don't know where they came Well, I know where they came from. I just don't know how they got the Ridgeway. Um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, Koreans. We have a Japanese congregation. It's an amazing church. I love it. I'm going to miss it big time. But uh, they're, they're almost all commuters. So they, they get on a, uh, on a train at 6.15 on, on Monday morning, and they go down to the city, come home late at night. I only get to see them on Sunday for a couple hours. That's it. So I was trying to figure out how do I disciple these people. And so I came up with this idea of, of this app, and I thought I was building it for my church. Just a way to get them into the Word of God every single day. As they're taking the train down, they put their headset on, they, they get their devotions done, they get to the city, they go to their job. Uh, I, I didn't understand that, that God had another plan because shortly after we started doing this, another church out in Pittsburgh said, we want to do this with our people. And then a church in Omaha said, we want to do it with our people. And then other churches want it. So, so now it's being used in 50 states and 50 countries. And every day about 30,000 people plug in to God's Word through this app. Um, I don't care if you use my app or not. That's not the point. But what I want is for you to get into God's Word. Get into God's Word and get into God's Word on a daily basis because that's what changes your life. And it does. Uh, it, it, it will not fail to do that. Because you know what? When the heat's really on, when the pressure's really on, it's not going to be good enough to say, Pastor Marty said this, or Pastor Soper said this. That doesn't count. When the heat's really on in your life, and you're really being tested, and you're really being challenged, you've got to be able to say, God's Word said this. And I know God's Word says this because I've read it, and I've meditated on it, and I've thought about how it impacts my life, and it's changed me. Then you'll stand then you'll bear fruit. Then you'll prosper. So I'm pretty old school. 
So every week after I preach my sermon, or as I'm finishing my sermon, I give my congregation homework. Okay, that's pretty hard. See, now you're in a really good position because I won't be back next week, so I can't check. Uh, I, I won't know whether you did it or not. But, but if you're ready for the challenge, I want to give you some homework. And here's the homework. I want you to make a promise that for the next seven days, you will read the Bible every single day. You don't have to use my app. That's not important. You have to get into the Bible. And for the next seven days, you'll read the Bible and you will spend time after you've read it reflecting on how what you read today is going to change the way you live for the next 24 hours. Okay, we clear? That's the assignment. I guarantee you something. that If you do that, and if you make that a consistent habit, not for one week or two weeks, but right now, just an experiment for one week, it'll change you. You'll never be the same again. Because knowing and obeying God's Word is fundamental to all true success. Father, we want to be those trees planted by the water that always bear fruit at the right time, the right kind of fruit at the right time, whose leaves never wither. We want to be people who are prosperous and blessed, happy, And we don't want to be the next righteous disaster. We don't want one bad choice to lead to another, to another, to another, until we're in a place we never, ever, ever thought we could get. So Lord, help us to make this commitment. Help us to put ourselves in the place at which the Word of God directs our lives and the Holy Spirit can speak to us through it. And then Lord, change us and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That was great. Thank you, John. It's a privilege having you here, buddy. God bless. Thank you for honoring him. Would you all stand with me? Next week when you come back, there'll be a big tub up here. We're doing a baptism service. I'm actually going to be the guy doing it in the water. So uh, please come on back. It's going to be exciting. Great opportunity to bring a friend because they get to hear the gospel. We have video stories of people that are getting baptized. We have, And even the people that come, if you decide next week you want to get baptized, we're going to make that available too. You can take the class afterwards. So can I just pray with you? Dear God, I pray your blessing upon this congregation as they move out into the world now to be part of us sharing the gospel in the world, but not of the world, as John spoke about, and help them really do their homework. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. See you next week.